0: So a man just won the Miss Universe Netherlands competition. So this man will now be competing in the global Miss Universe competition. And this man disguises himself as a woman. It's a 22-year-old who calls himself Ricky Valerie Coley. Um, We can play this. We can play this, this when it was announced on the screen right now, this video. And I mean, I think you can tell that this is a man. Just wait. Oh, by the way, it's in Dutch, so you're not gonna be able to under, well, maybe some of you will if you speak Dutch, but. So the individual in red, that is a biological male who identifies as a woman and one Miss Universe Netherlands. So, I just don't get actually all those girls behind him clapping. Like, do you not realize that this beauty pageant for women has actually like a man won a beauty pageant. Like do you not realize that biological women are completely obsolete if you allow men to win? Like why are you clapping? Why are, why don't you speak out? I I don't I don't know. Maybe I don't have enough sympathy for women in these situations because of how disruptive speaking out can be. Like I know that if these girls spoke out that they're risking their pageant careers. They're risking their reputation. They're risking being bullied by the left. Like, I get that. But at what point is the crisis an existential crisis enough that you realize that you have to fight? That you're actually, you've been given the privilege. This is the thing. You've been given the privilege of being put in that moment. And and, and other people haven't. Other people who, who maybe want to fight aren't in that moment. You've been given the privilege of being put in that moment. Aren't you going to do something with it? Like we all wait our entire lives, hope and strive our entire lives to have purpose, to have meaning, to to make a mark, to have a legacy. And that's not something that comes easy. That's not something that that when you leave a legacy or you leave a mark or you, you do something that's worth noting in the history books, it's not something that just like was smooth sailing. It's something that is challenging. Usually something that has negative repercussions or that was a struggle to overcome. It's a hard thing and you've been put in that position. What are you gonna do with it? Are you just gonna let it walk by for all the millions of girls and women in the world now and in the future? Are you Are just gonna let womanhood be obliterated by a, a dude in a dress? A dude in a dress? Look at this, look at the picture. This is element number 10. This is Ricky Valerie Coley. I have no idea what the birth name of this man was before he trans. Look at this picture. Okay, you can put all the makeup and girl hair on a dude, but like look at those hands. Those, are, those hands are humongous. Like they, they freak me out. Those hands freak me out. You look at that picture, you know 100% that's a dude because those hands could pull him a basketball. That just freaks me out. So apparently, I did not know this until I was researching the story before the show, the new owner of the Miss Universe organization is a person named Anne Ann Jutatip, But even though the first name of this individual is Anne, it's not a girl. It's a transgender. It's a man who is identifying as a woman. So the owner of Miss Universe is a man. So the owner and now one of the winners is a man. Like what? What? What do these people even envision for biological females? Like what? Do you, what do you think the role of women is? Like should women just go back to the kitchen like barefoot and pregnant? Or are men going to be pregnant now too? Like what? What do you? Th- what do you? What do you think biological women are good for? Are good for? And just so you know how much politics plays into this, that this. Man dressed up as a woman is not even kind of close to the most beautiful or talented per- woman on this stage. This is a picture of uh, the man who won. We'll put that up first, that's element 11A. Look at this picture. Like that's, I'm not trying to be rude here. I'm I'm engaging in political analysis because it's necessary to highlight um, the reality of the situation. This is not a pretty person, that's not a pretty face. I'm sure that I mean this person obviously has dignity and value as a human being because he was made in God's image. But this is not a pretty woman. This is not a pretty person. Like not an attractive person at all. That's the person that won the beauty pageant, Miss Netherlands. Now look at the runner-up. This is the runner-up. The runner-up's name is Nathalie Mog You tell me who's who's more attractive here. Who's more beautiful? I don't. <laughs> there's no doubt in anyone's mind. And I don't mean this. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to personally insult this man dressed up as a woman, I'm simply highlighting that no reasonable person by any measurable standard would think that the man is prettier than the woman here. And so it's just politics. It's ideology being shoved down your throat. They, they, they are challenging you not to push back on this because if they can tell you, if they can convince you that your eyes are lying, if they can convince you that you're looking at this and you think it's a man, but nope, it's a woman, that you're looking at this and you think, nope, that's ugly, and they tell you, no, it's beautiful, then they control you. They can tell you anything about everything and you will have to believe them and therefore you will have no agency, no autonomy, no independence, no liberty. You will just be pawns of them. That's what this is all about. They're challenging you, they're pushing up to the edges, seeing how far they can push you before you will fight back, before you will stop clapping. And when I say fight back, I mean like fight back, like don't clap, walk off the stage, speak out against this, condemn it. Talk about the importance of protecting women's functions from being obliterated by men. Talk about the importance of reality as contrasted to delusion, which is what we're seeing happen in Miss Netherlands. Okay, I read a very interesting... Are you guys on Threads? Threads is the new social media application that Meta launched. So it's supposed to be like an Instagram company. It's what it actually is. It's, it's a competitor to Twitter. It's Mark Zuckerberg's effort to push back against Elon Musk owning Twitter. And I joined it because I wanted to see what was going on. And I also join, I generally join the leftist social media platforms because I want to go into the lion's den. I want to, I want to, I want to speak reality where delusion is, is rewarded. Um, so if you're on there, give me a follow and um, interact with me. I don't know. I don't know if it'll remain a thing or not. It's not, it's not that good. It's not that interesting. A lot of the good functions of Twitter don't exist on threads. Um, but all of that is tangential to my point. My point is that I read a very interesting thread. Is it called a thread on threads? It seems a little redundant, but each of these social networks has their own terminology, which I generally think are all stupid. But um, I wanted to read you a thread that I found very, very interesting. So it's from uh, Catholic Answers, and it, 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 the thread starts with a tweet, or I suppose it's a tweet. <laughs> is it a post on thread? Is it a tweet? Who's to say? And this is, what, um, this is what the individual says. I understand that Catholics don't believe they worship Mary, but I'm often puzzled by the seemingly complete lack of concern about even the possibility of someone viewing Mary in an idol, how do you even say that word? Idolatrous? idolatrous manner. Could such a thing be possible? What would idolatry of Mary look like? And so this thread answers that question and I thought it was so good. It says this is a great question and it highlights a difference between how many modern Protestants understand worship and what the Bible means by worship. First, we need to distinguish three distinct things which happened in three distinct places in the New Testament. Preaching and teaching, which happened in the synagogue, prayer, which happened both in the lonely place and in the upper room, and worship, which happened in the temple. So, number one, preaching and teaching in the synagogue. In the New Testament, there are weekly services in the synagogue that look like what happens in many Protestant churches. There are readings from scripture followed by someone preaching, and many Protestants consciously model their worship off what they see Jesus and St. Paul doing in the synagogue. The problem is this, while reading the Bible and preaching are great, they're not worship. In fact, they're not even prayer. The only time the Bible connects the idea of prayer and the synagogue is in Matthew 6, 5, when Jesus says not to pray there. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Even the hypocrites weren't praying in the synagogue because it was a place of prayer. Rather, it was a public place, like a street corner somewhere that they may be seen by men. Number two, when it comes to prayer, and this is this happens in the lonely place or the upper room, preaching and teaching are often public acts. After all, the point of preaching is to be heard by men, but that is not the point of prayer. Prayer is conversation with God. Hence, Jesus says that when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is Matthew 6.6. 6. This isn't an absolute rule, of course, the thread reads. Jesus prays both in private, Mark 1.35, and in public, John 11.41-43, but whether you're praying individually or corporately, the key marker of prayer is that you're not just talking about God, you're talking to him. So then we have worship, which happened in in the temple. While prayer could happen anywhere, worship in the Bible is something related but distinct. One way we know it was distinct is that worship was localized in a way that prayer wasn't. The Samaritan woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus doesn't disagree with her, saying only that, "Quote The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is John chapter 4. So what did worship mean to the Samaritans and the Jews, to the woman at the well and to Jesus? Our English word worship comes from Um, worth-ship, it's to give someone what they're worth. But the biblical concept of worship isn't just giving someone their due, but about giving God his due. So how did ancient Jews and Samaritans do that? As the Protestant scholar Everett Ferguson explained, sacrifice was the universal language of worship in the ancient world. Prayer is talking to God, but worship goes beyond that by offering something to God. And what we offer to God is sacrifice. This isn't the only part of worship, but it's at the heart of it. And this remains true in the new covenant. Even though we're no longer offering animals in the temple in Jerusalem, true Christian worship is still sacrificial. It's why St. Paul can call us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is Romans 12.1. Worship is inseparable from sacrifice. So why, so why don't Catholics worry that we're worshiping Mary? Because we are not offering her sacrifice. Preaching and prayer and honor aren't restricted to God, it's not sinful to speak well of your neighbor or speak to her or honor her, but sacrificial worship is something unique and distinct. As St. Augustine says, certainly no man would dare to say that sacrifice is due to any but God. On the other hand, if Protestants worry that we might be accidentally worshiping Mary, that might be a good sign that they no longer understand the biblical concept of worship. If you're not giving God anything more than what we Catholics offer to Mary, the problem isn't that what we're doing—that we're doing too much for Mary—but that you're doing too little for God. I know some people are going to listen to this and think it's controversial. Some Protestants and Evangelicals, and I love you all. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, are going to disagree. But I challenge you to think about this. It's pretty interesting. This was from this is a thread by Catholic Answers. You can actually go to Catholic Answers for the full article on it. I just read the brief portion, uh, the brief portion of the thread. But it's very distinct, and this is one of the most common misconceptions about Catholicism: is that that Catholics worship Mary, which we don't. We venerate Mary, which is honoring her, and we don't we don't pray to her. We ask her to pray for us. We ask her to intercede for us, which is the same as asking a friend or a parent or your church to pray for you. Um, and no, it's not praying to the dead because Mary is alive in Christ. That's that's what it means to be in heaven with Christ: that you are alive in Christ. Um, but let me know what you think. Let me know what your thoughts are. Let me know what your rebuttal is. Let me know if this changed your heart and changed your mind. Um, I thought deeply about this. I actually read this on the airplane on the traveling back, and I really, really liked the way that it was presented.